the scripture for this morning is Hebrews 7, chapter 7, verse 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you our thanks and our praise for who you are and for what you have done. We thank you for the irreversible truths and the promises of God in Christ. We thank you for the security that we have in you, Father, the hope that we have in you, the unshakable joy that we have in you. We thank you for the promise of Isaiah 56, 7, that you will make us joyful in your house of prayer. And Father, how I pray that you would do just that today. Lord, how I pray that you would take over, that you would speak by your spirit, that you would form in your people a way of life that is pleasing to your heart and exalting to your name, Father. Oh, Lord, that you would make of us a people that are a delight to you. We love you, Father. We trust in you. We surrender to you now, and we give you our thanks and praise for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us at least have heard, and we probably understand the truth, that God's house is a house of prayer. But I wonder if you've ever taken the time to think about why that is. Why must God's house be a house of prayer? Why did God make such a specific and strong statement right at this point? You know, if you think about it with me, we can probably make an argument that God's house should be a house of joy, it should be a house of justice, it should be a house of love, it should be a house of many things. But I can't think of another place where the Lord specifically said that my house must be a house of blank other than prayer. Why did he make such a specific statement about that? And we thought about this a little bit last week, but why was it that specifically at the point where Jesus saw prayer corrupted into money-making, why was it that at that point he got so outraged? I mean, don't you, you, you realize that, that, that Jesus saw corruption in other places of his life? He saw corruption in other parts of the leadership of Israel. He saw it basically every day. But the thing that made him go off is when prayer was corrupted in a money-making operation. Why is that? Why is there such deep passion about this? Well, one answer we could give is this. God's house must be a house of prayer because he wants his house to be a place where his infinite resources are available to meet our unending needs. He wants to be the savior and the helper of all who come to him. And anything that gets in the way of that, anything that corrupts his ability to bless the people, is something that, that he's not going to tolerate. Is something that in his love and in his heart he must strike out against. 
God wants his house to be a place where our poverty is exchanged for his riches, where our weakness is exchanged for his strength, where his name is glorified by being our helper and our healer. So God's house must be a house of prayer, beloved, because it must be a place where God exalts himself by touching the lives of the people. Notice that it says, my house must be a house of prayer for what? For the peoples, right? So of course this is for the glory of God, but he's there to bless the peoples. And anything that seeks to cut him off from the peoples, he's going to have to do something about that. He has great passion to be the one source of life and light in this world. And therefore, his house must be a house of prayer. There's really no other option in his mind. There's another answer that we can give. I think it's a more profound answer. I think it's a more eternal answer. And I would just put it in this way. God's house must be a house of prayer because God himself is in a constant state of prayer. God's house must be a house of prayer because God himself, from forever and to forever, is in a constant state of prayer. Prayer is the nature of God's heart, and therefore, prayer must be the nature of God's house. Let me just take a few minutes to explain to you what I mean. In the verses that Jesse read for us today, the author of Hebrews teaches us that since Jesus lives forever, he will serve as our great high priest forever. Since his life can never come to an end, his reign as high priest can never come to an end. And that is tremendously good news for us. Because this is true, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus saves us to the uttermost. He is able to complete the work that he began inside of us. He's able to perfect the faith that he planted in us. He's able to completely sanctify us even though he's already perfected us. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? It says that the Lord works to sanctify those he's already perfected. He is perfecting those he perfected. Yesterday I got a great metaphor of this because Kim and I finally sold our old Hyundai Sonata who the engine blew up in it a couple years ago and we've been hanging on to it wondering what we're gonna do and just yesterday finally somebody came. He drove all the way down from Brainerd. He's a Hyundai technician. He took about 30 minutes and just looked at everything in the car. He made me an offer, sold the car and now and then he drove off with it with his trailer. All right, the car needs work. It needs sanctification. But in a sense, it's already been perfected because the deal has been done. The title has been signed over, right? It belongs to him now. And now he's got all the skill that's necessary to fix the engine, to fix the other quirks in the car, and to do with it whatever he wants to do with it. And this is the state of our lives in Christ. He has acquired us, if you will. From his heart to our hearts, he has acquired us. And now he promises, he promises that he'll complete this work. And he's able to complete it because he always lives. And he will always reign as the great high priest of heaven and earth. And notice that it says that the means by which Jesus saves us to the uttermost is prayer. You ever really stop to think about this? Jesus always lives to intercede. He always lives to pray. He always lives to lift us up before the Father. And beloved, this is not a metaphor. This is a living reality that I believe is an eternal reality from forever and to forever. Jesus always lives to make intercession before the Father. Right this very second, 
And every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of every decade of every century of every millennium, Jesus always lives to make intercession and he's actually interceding for us. He's praying for you by name. He's praying for you by specific circumstance. He's praying with great specificity. The Bible even says he knows the hairs on our head so he must know every detail of our lives. He's praying with great passion and with great compassion. He's praying with perfect wisdom and he's praying forever. Every second of every day, your Savior lives to intercede for you. Even when you go to sleep, he lives to intercede for you. And Paul agrees with this. He says in Romans 8.34 that even as Jesus died and then rose again from the dead, he always lives to make intercession for us. And it is this truth The truth that Christ is living to intercede that caused Paul to ask the famous question, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you see his logic? If Christ Jesus, the great and mighty one, is living to pray for us and his prayers are pleasing to the Father, what is going to stand between you and the Father? What can possibly get between you and God if Christ is interceding for you before God? Beloved, nothing can separate us specifically because Christ is praying for us. That's why. We are, in fact, more than conquerors. You know why? Because our chief intercessor is the one who has conquered. Amen? The conqueror always lives to make intercession for us. And this is our great and undying hope, absolutely undying hope. Because Jesus is in a constant state of prayer, beloved, his house must be a house of prayer. This is his heart, this is his way of life, and this is his house. Now, if you look at verse 26, Hebrews 7, 26, you'll notice that something is said there that becomes very important at this point. Because Christ is a particular kind of intercessor. He has a particular kind of character. The author lists five things there very quickly. He says Jesus is holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he is separated from sinners, and he's exalted above the heavens. And this is exactly the kind of high priest that we need. To be holy means that Jesus is perfectly devoted to his Father. He has separated himself for the Father, and he has not even reserved 1% of his heart for anything else. He is fully devoted to God. He is also innocent, which is to say he's absolutely clean of any sin in thought, in word, or in deed. He has never actually sinned, and we need a high priest that's just like that. He is unstained, which is a technical word, actually, that means that he's ceremonially clean before God the Father. He will never come to the temple of God and hear the Father say, you're not welcome here because you're unclean. Christ is eternally prepared to be eternally in the manifest presence of the Father. Christ is separated from sinners, which is great news. He's sympathetic toward us, but beloved, we need a Savior who is not like us, in sin at least, right? Imperfection can never bring about perfection. It simply can't happen. And so we have a perfect high priest who is separated from us as sinners at least. And then finally we have a high priest who is exalted above the heavens, which I take to mean that one day every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is exalted above everything. And the moment in history is coming where everything will bow down and acknowledge that this is true. Everything will. 
Now, beloved, this is the kind of high priest that we have. This is not metaphor. This is reality. This is the new reality under the new covenant, right? And because he is this kind of high priest, when he prays for us, the Father pays close attention. The Father listens to everything he has to say. You see, the character of who Jesus is is the foundation of his intercession. It's the power of his intercession. It is the effectiveness of his intercession. Because the Father is completely pleased with Jesus, he's completely pleased with Jesus' prayers. Because he's pleased with who Christ is, the Father is completely pleased with what Christ has to say. And again, I want to remind you that Christ is always living to intercede for us. He's praying for us by name. He's praying for us by circumstance. He's praying with specificity, with passion, with sympathy, with perfect wisdom, with unending hope. He is always praying for us. And beloved, if his prayers are pleasing to the Father, then the Father is hearing his prayers for us every minute of every day. It's amazing. And so I say to you again, God's house must be a house of prayer because Jesus is in a constant state of prayer. Wherever he goes, the spirit of intercession goes. Can you see that? If he is always interceding, then wherever he goes, the spirit of intercession goes. This is why God's house must be a house of prayer. And if that wasn't enough, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit as well is always living to intercede. And do you remember what it says there about him? It says that he's interceding for us with groans that are just flat, too deep for words. And I take this to mean that the communication between the Father and the Spirit is perfectly understood, but it's so deep and so profound that human words can't capture what he's praying for us. And again, as it is with the Son, so it is with the Spirit. There are no time limitations put on this in the Scripture. And this means that every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of every decade of every century of every millennia, the Holy Spirit is living to groan for us, to intercede for us, to pray for us, to be for us and not against us. It's really an amazing truth, beloved, an absolutely stunning truth. Have you ever wondered what he's praying exactly? Have you ever wanted to just peek in and just listen, even if for five minutes, even if all you heard was groaning, just to be able to hear what's being said? Well, I don't think that the Bible will give us a lot of specific detail, but I do think the Bible gives us instruction on the general direction of how the Spirit is praying for us and how the Son is praying for us. I take this from Romans 8, 28 through 30, so let me just read these verses for you and remind you that they come in the context of the Spirit's prayer life. Here's what they say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, to God's purposes. And why is that? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now we're really getting a clue to what their prayer life is about. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is a way of saying he shaped them into the image of Jesus Christ. So what are the specifics of Jesus' prayers for us, the specifics of the Spirit's prayers for us? I don't know, and I wouldn't dare to try to say. 
but I do think and I, I do say with confidence that I think I know the direction of their prayers for us. I think that in everything they pray, they are essentially praying, Father, glorify yourself by shaping your people into your image. Use good things and bad things, hard things and easy things. Use victory and suffering. Use anything and everything in this life to shape them to be like Jesus Christ. Often our prayers are some form of, God, get me out of this situation, right? For being honest, Jesus doesn't always agree with us. His prayer is always, Father, for the glory of your name, shape them into my image. The Spirit is always praying, Father, for the glory of your name, work all things together to this good that they would be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's a much more profound way to pray. Now, if you think about this with me, I don't think the Bible specifically teaches this anywhere. Maybe, maybe you know of a verse or something you could tell me about later. But I spent some time this week thinking about what the Father's place in prayer is. If that's the Son and that's the Spirit, what of the Father? And I don't see any specific verse, but I just could say to you by implication that if Jesus is living to intercede before the Father, the Father is living to receive his intercession, right? And if the Holy Spirit is living to intercede before the Father, the Father is always living to receive his intercession, The Father does not intercede for us because he's the one, he's the the end point of all intercession. He's the one who receives intercession, who processes it in whatever way he does that. He's the one who answers yes and no and maybe and wait and whatever he answers according to his wisdom. He is the one who receives and deals primarily with the intercession of the Son and of the Spirit. So, beloved, may we have eyes to see that God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is literally in a constant state of prayer, a ceaseless state of intercession. From forever and to forever, God always lives for the purpose of intercession, each person of the Trinity having their specific role to play. And so again, I say to you that God's house has to be a house of prayer Because God is in a constant state of prayer. Prayer is the nature of God's heart. It's the nature of his being. And therefore, prayer must be the nature of his house. Wherever Jesus goes, the spirit of intercession goes. Wherever the Holy Spirit goes, the spirit of intercession goes. It's very a powerful truth to me. A very life-shaping truth to me. Now with all of that in mind, We've come to a place where we can see something that I find very breathtaking and that I think has the power to shape our way of life in Christ, both as individuals and as a body. And I pray that God will give us a heart to let him do a work in us now, to let him make us joyful in his house of prayer. Some 2,700 years ago, God made a promise. One thing I love about God is that he always keeps his promises, amen? I don't know about you, but I don't always keep my promises. Sometimes I don't keep them just because I made the wrong promise and I gotta make adjustments and stuff like that. Sometimes I I make promises I shouldn't make. Sometimes I'm just faithless and I'm a failure. But God is not like me. God is not like us. When God promises something, he means it. And over 2,700 years ago, he made this promise in Isaiah 56, 7. He said, I'm gonna open my heart and my hands. I'm gonna welcome the nations into my house. And here's the promise. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. God promised to make us joyful 
in his house of prayer. And I'll tell you something, if you want joy anywhere, you want joy in God's house, right? When I was in the world, I had a kind of joy in bars and at parties and this place and that place, but that kind of joy ended up biting me in the end. There's lots of joys out there in the world, but they don't always turn out the way that they promise to turn out. God's promises turn out better than we think they're going to turn out. God's joy turns out better than we think it's going to turn out. Now, it doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we won't have pain. It doesn't mean we won't have difficulties and trials. But all those things end up doing in the end is showing us that the joy we have in Jesus is unshakable and it's untakeable. All right? In my case, you could take my, mo- my father from me, you could take my mother from me, my stepfather, many of my friends have passed away, my brother's passed away. A lot of things can happen to us in life, but you know what? Nobody can steal the joy I have in Christ. The, the joy of God is the kind of joy we need, and God made a promise to us, beloved. He said, I'm gonna make the nations joyful in my house of prayer. Now, what is joyful about God's house of prayer. There's lots of things, and sometime I'd really like to talk to you about those things, maybe just in private conversation. I really would like to just sit and think with you about what is joyful about God's house of prayer. Lots of things. But in the interest of time, let me just focus on this, this one thing. And I've already mentioned it, but I want to put these two things together now. God makes us joyful in his house of prayer by conforming us to the image of his Son, The highest and sweetest joy in life is being conformed to the image of Christ. There is no sweeter joy in this world but realizing that little by little by little you're becoming more like the one who saved you. You're actually partaking in his nature. You're partaking in his character. You're partaking in his labor. You're partaking in who he is. You're partaking in what he does. The highest joy in the house of God is being formed into the image of his son. And since the Son is always living to make intercession, part of what it means to be shaped into the image of Jesus is to become an intercessor like Jesus. Do you see that? If we're to become like Jesus, this means that we are destined to join him in the ministry of intercession. Do you understand? He lives for intercession. It's not just something that he does on the side. This is right in the center of his heart. And to become like Jesus is to be shaped into an intercessor. What a profound thought. What a profound joy. What life-shaping possibilities are right there. Andrew Murray, the famous pastor and author of the 19th century, wrote this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but let me just read it for you. He said, of all the Christ-like traits... None is greater or more glorious than conformity to him in the work that engages him without ceasing in the Father's presence, namely, his all-prevailing intercession. The more we abide in Christ and grow in his likeness, the more his priestly life will have work in us, and the more our life will become what his life is, one that intercedes for others. Let me read that last sentence again. This sentence hit me straight between the eyes on like the third or fourth day of my sabbatical this year. God used this so powerfully in my life. The more we abide in Christ and grow in his likeness, the more his priestly life will work in us and the more our life will become what his life is, namely one that intercedes for others. 
Now, I want to pause here just for a minute to make sure we're understanding what's being said because I have noticed over the years that sometimes the words prayer and intercession get thrown out there as though people understand them, and sometimes people are actually confused by them. So let me just uh, be clear in just a second because they're simple terms. But the word prayer simply means talking to God. It's just about a communication life with God. That's all we're talking about. The word intercession means talking to God about other people, okay? So if I say, Father, here's my heart, here are my needs, then I'm praying. And God commands me to do this. There's nothing wrong with this. God says, cast your cares upon me. So, of course, we should bring all the needs of our hearts to God. But when we say, Father, here's my friend, here's his heart, here's her heart, here's his or her needs, please, Father, in, you know, intervene in their lives. Now we've moved into intercession, If I'm talking to God about myself, I'm praying. If I'm talking to God about others, I'm interceding. There's nothing mystical or magical about intercession, beloved. It's not something that only super spiritual Christians can do. Praying to God about other people is something that we're all destined to do. We're all destined to come into the conformity of the character and labor of Jesus and learn to pray for other people without ceasing as he does. I do think that some of us have a gift of intercession. Have you seen that in your life? There are just some people that just have a special spirit of prayer. But all God's children are called to talk to him. And all God's children are called to talk to him about other people. All of us are called to be shaped into the character of Christ and into the labor of Christ, which is mainly intercession. Now, do you remember 1 Peter 2, 9 by any chance? Do you remember what Peter called us there in those verses? I was so grateful. This summer, I spent tons of time thinking about Hebrews. And then on my first week back from sabbatical, I actually listened to Pastor Kevin preach 11 times in one week because I listened to all 10 sermons online, and then I listened to him preach live. And when you mentioned, Kevin, uh, 1 Peter 2.9, this idea of a royal priesthood came to my mind. It really gripped me because I had been in Hebrews for so long. And I realized something about that that was just stunning to me, really, really breathtaking to me. There's lots to be said about this, but I just want to say one thing. I put it in one sentence, and I'm going to admit to you this is a complicated sentence. I apologize for that. But let me just read it once or twice and work through it with you. Here's a sentence. Is this up there? I think I put it up there. Yeah, I hope you can read that. By the irreversible decree of God the Father, God has spoken and will not change his mind. Jesus has been designated the eternal king and high priest of heaven and earth, right? So God said, Jesus, you will be the royal of all royals, you will be the king of all kings, and you will be the great and final high priest. Before you, there were some 82, 83 high priests, but you're the high priest to end all high priests, and you will serve forever. You are the king high priest forever. God will not change his mind. By virtue of our unity with Jesus then, we become both royal and priestly. Do you see that? You see, Jesus has promised to shape us into his image. We're gonna become like him, all right? Because he's the king, we have to become royal in some sense. And because he's the high priest, we have to be priestly in some sense. It's not just a phrase that he has made us to be a royal priesthood. Because we're united with Christ, we must be a royal priesthood, beloved. This is our destiny, to be like Jesus, to be royal in the presence of the king and to intercede in the presence of the king. Jesus has destined us to be an army 
of intercessors, an army of royal intercessors. This is his vision for his people throughout the world. Because we're destined to be shaped into the image of Christ, we must be a royal priesthood. I hope I'm being clear enough there. If you'll indulge me, let me press into this just for a minute because I think this will help us know what to do with that. If you think about what the function of priests are, what do priests do? Priests essentially stand between God and other people, right? Isn't that the way God made this? If you think about the Old Testament priests, the people were not allowed to come directly to God. They had to go to the priest who then went to God on their behalf, and God blessed the people through the priests. And of, of course, there's a sense in which God had direct relationship with his people, but if you read the Bible very carefully, you'll see that the idea of a priest is as a mediator between God, a holy God, and sinful people. Now, in the church, if we are all a royal priesthood, this means that we don't need to play a mediatorial role for each other. You do not need me to get to God, right? We're, we're not Catholics here. I'm not your priest. I'm your fellow priest, I'm your fellow brother in Christ. And we all got to Christ through the one great priest, Jesus Christ, right? We come to God through him. So I don't need you to get to God. You don't need me to get to God in that mediatorial sense. So then what does it mean to call us priests? And I would simply answer that God has called us to be priests between a holy God and sinful people who are still rebelling against God. We are priests for God in the world. And we are fellow priests inside the body. But as far as our work of mediation goes, we're standing between God and the world, which is a tremendous privilege. But for me, it also brings up a, a very significant problem. And that is just to say, how does it work? We're, we might be priests before the Lord. We might be one with Christ. But I don't know about you. There's still some brokenness in my life. There's still some sin in my life. So who the heck am I to stand between a holy God and other broken, sinful people, right? Do you feel worthy to play that role in the world? You feel able to play that role in the world? I know I sure don't. And I'm actually really glad that I don't because in myself, I have no power to play that kind of role before God or before other people. But by the incomprehensible grace of God, everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is actually united with Christ and then he, the great mediator of heaven and earth, does his work of mediation through us. He does it through us. His work of mediation is not based upon who we are. It's based upon who he is. Our function as priests is not about our character. It's about his character. Our ministry as priests is not about what we're doing for God or even for the nations. It's about what God is doing through us. He is living out his royalness and his priestliness through his people, is what I'm trying to say. The way this works is that we're unified with Christ, and it's an act of pure and stunning grace that he would help us, that he would use us. Like, Carmen, I don't know who this woman was that you prayed for that's going to Mecca, but as you were praying, I was praying, God, you have the ability to bring someone in an airport or on a plane right next to her to tell her about the true Savior. You know, you have the ability to do that. God used me to do that several times this summer where I just, is a, near a miracle that I happen to run into this person just at the right time. And I became the mediatorial word for this person to hear they have to believe in Jesus Christ. Am I their mediator? Well, 
kind of. I mean, I'm playing a kind of role, but the truth is Jesus is their mediator, and he's just doing his work through me, right? I don't know exactly how this looks in the Father's sight, but the way I see it is that Christ is mediating through his body by the power of his blood and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls to people. Jesus saves people. Jesus sanctifies people. He encourages people. He rebukes people. He empowers people. He sends people through his church by the irreversible power of his blood and the living presence of his Holy Spirit. He is the mediator, but beloved, by an act of stunning grace, he has invited us into his work of mediation. We are in this world. We are the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And this means that we are an army of intercessors. The primary way that we mediate between God and our cities God and the nations is by praying for them. This is the primary thing. And then, of course, God uses our speech. He uses our actions. He uses our gifts. He uses all kinds of things. Recently, I got a nice card. I think I forwarded an email to you all from the people that arrived in Minnesota for the, for the things that you had given toward the, the refugees that are coming into Minneapolis right now. And God uses us certainly in these kinds of ways to bless people and to speak to people. But the primary thing he calls us to do is join him as a royal priest and intercede for people. See, to be like Christ means we must be a royal army of intercessors. This is his vision, beloved. This is his vision for our lives. And I want to say to you again that this is not the calling of the super spiritual among us, all right? This is the calling of every child of God in Christ. We are all called to learn what it means to pray without ceasing. Or if I can put it to you in other words, you're called to talk to your father all the time. We are all called to cast our cares and the cares of others upon him because he cares for us. We are all called to pray for our neighborhoods and to pray for the nations. We are called to become like Jesus and always bringing the will of the Father before the Father on behalf of other people. We are called to be intercessors, beloved, every single Christian. And I just wanna say to you again that the ability to do this and the power to do this has to do with who Jesus is and not with who we are. Again, I wanna tell you, I don't feel worthy for any of this. Make sure that you understand that. There's no pastor, there's no leader in this world who is worthy of any of this. This is an act of grace. This is God doing his work through us. And if you don't feel worthy to do it, you're in a perfect place. Because it's not about you. It's about what God has already destined to do through you. So our part is very simple, and it is to surrender. It's just to surrender to the Lord. Now, as we hear the call of Jesus this morning to join him in intercession, as we bow our lives to his will, I believe that he'll bring us more into the fullness of who he has created us to be as individuals and as people. Let me quote Murray one more time, and I think I put this up there. Let me see if it's there. Yep, can you just read this with me, please? Through intercession, the church finds and exercises its highest power. That's gonna be up there for a few minutes, so if you're a note taker, I'd really encourage you to write that down. Through intercession, the church finds and exercises its highest power. I think that that's true. The highest power of the church is not to provide moving worship experiences. It's not to provide great teaching. Teaching matters a lot, but it's not the highest power of the church. The highest power of the church is not to meet the needs of the hurting and the homeless, the, the helpless. 
The highest power of the church is not to advocate for social justice or to seek to transform a culture from liberal to conservative values. All these things have their place in the life of the church, and I really do mean that. They have their place. But our highest power is this. We have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all I can say is I pray that this will become real to you. I remember sitting in the woods, I think I said this to you a couple weeks ago when I was getting ready to come back, just saying, Lord, how will I say what you have shown me to your people in a way that they'll understand? And I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. All I can do is trust that the Holy Spirit is working in you. Beloved, we have access to God, and the nations do not. You need to read Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 carefully and see that without Jesus Christ, people are cut off from God and utterly hopeless before him. And he has given us this power that we can come into his presence at any time and pray to him on behalf of other people. He's given us that privilege. And I want to say to you that our cities need this from us more than they need anything from us, that we would pray for them. The neighborhood in which you live needs this from you more than anything they need from you, that you would pray for them. Hang out with them, enjoy them, help them, be helped by them, yes to all that. But the main thing that you have that unbelievers do not have is access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world needs us to take advantage of that access, beloved. The highest power of the church is found in intercession. Because in intercession, we join Jesus Christ and we join the Holy Spirit in pleading for the nations, beloved, pleading for the nations. Murray says again that when the church yields itself to this work of intercession, it can then expect the power of Christ to be manifested on its behalf. And I think that that's true. Jesus said, if you ask, you will receive. And so, of course, we need to learn to pray for our neighborhoods and the nations in ways that are pleasing to the Lord, and we'll talk about some of the specifics of that next week. But please hear me say that the thing you have that nobody else outside of Christ has and that they desperately need for you to take advantage of is access to God through Jesus Christ. They need us to intercede, beloved. As we learn to follow our master into the courts of intercession, and as we learn to pray there, things may turn out in the way we expected them to turn out. Things may not turn out in the way we expected them to turn out. But I want to tell you, that is not what's important. What's important is that through the practice of intercession, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. And through the practice of intercession, God is breathing his will into our hearts and through our mouths, and God is going to get his way in our neighborhoods and among the nations. Amen? Often, read the Bible, you'll see. The way God does things is not the way people expected God to do things. Isn't that right? So we let loose of the expectations. That is not our business. Our business is to learn to come before the Lord and simply pray for ourselves and then also for other people. Now, if you're like me, you believe everything that I've taught today because I've been clearly teaching out of the Bible itself. I'm not making this stuff up, and I've quoted Murray a couple times, but this stuff isn't coming out of his books. This stuff's coming out of the Bible, so of course we believe it. But there's got to be probably inside your heart a question like there is in my heart, yes, Lord, but how does this work? How can this possibly work? And I'll say more about practical things next week, but for now, let me just say this, that these things work because we live by the power of the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. I'm gonna do this work in you. 
Your burden is not to come and do the work of intercession. Your burden is to surrender to me and to let me teach you how to be an intercessor. This is what the Lord says. It simply works by surrender, beloved. Christ is the chief intercessor, and he's a very good teacher of intercession. Amen? In another part of his book, Andrew Murray says, listen, here you can have this hope that if Jesus is your teacher, you're going to make progress. He's a pretty good teacher. He knows what he's doing. He's the chief intercessor of the universe. So all we need to do is come before him. And I've got some good news for you. If you're faithful in intercession, he is always living to intercede. And if you're faithless in your intercession, guess what? He still lives to intercede. When you remember to pray, he is always praying. When you forget to pray, he doesn't forget to pray. When you pray in the right way, he prays along with you. When you pray in the wrong way, he's sort of praying for you, right? Steer you in the right direction. The power, the potential of your prayer life has to do with his prayer life and not yours. And so I want to just encourage you this morning to let the burden of intercession go and embrace the joy of intercession. I hope that I've been clear enough that you can see that what's really at stake here is that God wants to make us joyful in his house of prayer by conforming us to the image of his son until the day when we are in fact an army of intercessors in our neighborhoods and among the nations. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Now, like last week, I cannot imagine ending the service in any other way but to gather together in prayer. So again, I know some of this is uncomfortable for some of us, but the Lord will help us with that. And I want to encourage us to just gather in groups of three to five. We have about seven minutes or so. And today what I want to ask you to do, though, specifically is don't pray for yourself today. Today I want to ask you to learn to pray for others. And just remember, simple words are just fine before the Lord. You don't have to be fancy or articulate. But today, pray for somebody else in your group. Pray for somebody else in the church. Pray for the city. Pray for the nations. But today, let's join Jesus in the art of intercession. Then I'll come up and close us in about seven or ten minutes. So let's go. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so to wrap up your prayers, and then I'll close this out. Lord Jesus, your house is your house, and your heart is your heart. And your heart always lives to intercede, and so your house is always a place of intercession. But that is your work to make that happen. And we trust you for that work, Father. We trust you that your word has had an effect in our lives today. We trust you that one or two or three things stood out to us that we can grasp onto and grow through. And I pray, Lord, that you would indeed do this work, Lord. I pray that you would make us a people of prayer, that you would make Glory of Christ Fellowship a house of prayer, that the aroma of prayer would be upon our lives because the spirit of prayer is in our lives. And I want to thank you for what you'll do, Father. As we learn to follow you in prayer, our lives will be changed. Our lives will be greatly affected. Our Marriages will be affected, our, our, our parenting will be affected, our jobs will be affected, our, our future dreams will be affected, the way we use our money will be affected, our neighborhoods will be affected, Lord, our cities will be affected, entire nations might be affected, Lord. I think we'll be pretty blown away to see in that final day how you use the simple prayers of people in some corner of the world to really touch a nation in another corner of the world. I think we'll be pretty amazed to see the power of your grace in the way that you use your people's intercessions.
So help us, Lord, just to be at peace. Help us to relax. The burden of intercession is on you. The joy of intercession belongs to us. Please help us, Lord, just to simply talk to you about everything and to talk to you about other people. And I pray, Lord, that as we learn to talk to you, that you would answer, that you would show us that you're hearing us, Lord, that you would show us that you're the God of this church, that you're the God of this people. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do. I praise your name for what you'll do. Please, Lord, now receive our worship as we rise to sing to you one more time. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.